Good morning. And you're, if you're online with us this morning, we want to say good morning to you as well. And we're delighted that everyone here is on campus. And those of you online, we're delighted that you're with us as well. And congratulations to the graduates. Kindergarten was my best five years. I'm just saying, it was an awesome time for me. And uh, so let's just stop and pray. We're going to be in uh, the Psalms again today. So uh, let's pray and ask the Lord to really work in our lives. Father, thank you, Lord, for just the privilege we have today to talk about worship. And I pray that, God, that as we think about worship, as we let you engage with us, as we think about, God, what it means to you, how important it is to you, God, and uh, how it changes our life, I pray that, God, that you would just step into our lives in a very powerful way. And I just want to thank you for just the privilege that I have to speak today. Don't take that lightly, Father. Ask that you would anoint what I say and allow me to just be centered on you today. In Jesus' holy and powerful name I pray, amen. So if you brought your Bible today or your, one of your devices that you study the Bible on, uh, we're going to be in Psalm 96 today. And I just want to start by saying Psalm 96 is so rich and so deep and so wonderful. And if you miss some things that are in it, man, you're just going to miss some really important things in the Christian life. And I just want to say one thing to all my friends here today and those of you watching online. I think the missing ingredient in the modern church is a healthy and biblical understanding of what worship is. And I think we suffer because of it. I think that we don't experience all that God has for our lives because we misunderstand, misinterpret, uh, maybe don't, don't relate to worship. So today my hope and my prayer is that you'll lean into this in a really interesting way and that you'll look at the concept of worship for your own life. It is an expression that we all do differently. I am not a singer. So uh, if I sing, people cringe. So I don't use worship, I don't use music as my primary tool for, for how I express myself to God. But if I had Grayson's voice, I would, you know. It would be amazing if I had Grayson's voice and, and actually a little lower key. That would be even better. But, uh, but I'm, I'm just saying today I think will be helpful to you. So Psalm 96, and we're just going to jump right into it. Psalm 96 is a universal call to you to learn how to, in, to, to engage with God in this concept of worship. Yahweh, that's his personal name, that's God's personal name. Yahweh wants you every day to engage in worship, not just on Sundays, not just when you feel like it. Worship is such an important thing. The key thought in this section of Scripture is this. The, the, the bottom line is that God is in control of the past, the present, and the future. God is in control of everything. So therefore, why not worship? If He is in control of everything, why not come to Him? The psalm, this particular psalm, intends to produce joy and invoke faith in our life. Those two ingredients, who doesn't want to have more joy and more faith in their life? Amen? Come on, you're the 11 o'clock service when I say amen. I, you, you left me out hanging out there. I'm just saying, you left me all by myself. So let's not do that again. That was really awkward for me and for you. So if I say amen, you say it back really loudly. It makes me feel better. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. It makes me feel better about myself, and that's what this is all about, right? I'm kidding. That was a joke. I've been told, I've been told that if I have to tell you it's a joke, 
that, you know, that it can't be a joke, but I'm just saying you've never seen the 11 o'clock service yet. <laughs> that was a joke. That was a joke. I'm just kidding. That was a joke. Now you're now mad at me before I even start teaching you. So there we go. So this amazing psalm describes God in three ways, three amazing ways. God is the creator of all. He is the creator of all that you and I can see and what we can't see beyond what we can see. And it describes God as the present ruler of the universe, holding all things together by the word of his power. And it describes Psalm 96 in particular, describes God as the, as the, as the judge of all men, the coming judge of all men. Those three things. So the only question that remains is, is what should my response be to this living God, this powerful king who's coming back? What should be my response to him? So with that in mind, we're going to jump into Psalm 96, verse 1 through 3. And in the first three verses, it is power-packed. Don't miss anything. Listen to what it says. Sing a new song to the Lord. Let the whole earth sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord, honor, honor his name. Each day proclaim the good news that he saves. Proclaim his glorious deeds among the nations. Tell everyone about the amazing things that he does. Now, there are six commands in this section of Scripture. There are six things that God doesn't just suggest that you do. He commands that you do. Six things. The first three things are that you and I are to sing to the Lord. Sing a new song, actually. Three times. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, if my dad ever said it a second time, I knew he meant business. If he said it a third time, I thought, I'm in trouble if I don't do this, right? So here God says three times that you're to sing a new song unto the Lord. Hold that thought. And we're going to come back to what that actually means in just a minute. But then there are three other commands. We are to honor God. We're to proclaim Him. And we're to tell the nations about Him. Those three things in addition. So what does it mean that we are to sing a new song? What is up with that? So I'm going to give my best stab at this. And so to, I think to understand this, I think the Bible is like a rose. And, it, you know, oftentimes a rose isn't in full bud yet. And so the Old Testament is when it's not in full bud. But when, you know, the sun comes up and the weather's right, the flower, the rose comes out, that's the New Testament. So in the New Testament... It unfolds. This idea of singing a new song unfolds for us before God. So it's found in Revelation chapter 5. So Revelation chapter 5, let me give you a historical context for it first <clears throat> before I tell you about what it says. There is a search in heaven. There is a title deed to the earth in heaven. It is sealed with seven seals. And the book of Revelation is about those seven seals being broken. When the seventh seal is broken, the earth belongs unto the Lord. That's the book of Revelation. Now you understand it, right? Good. So in the midst of this title deed being presented in heaven, there is a panic that goes on in heaven for a minute. All of heaven is kind of anxious. And they are crying out and saying, who is worthy to break these seals? And, of course, we know that the lion of the tribe of Judah steps forward. He's the only one that's worthy to break the seals. So in Revelation chapter 5, listen to these words. After this has all happened, after the, 
the Lamb of God has now presented himself. Revelation chapter 5 says, and they sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God and they will reign on the earth. So now back to Psalm 96. Psalm 96, as we understand Revelation chapter 5, is this new song that we're to be singing about. And this is what this new song says. This new song says that Jesus is the conquering king, coming king and that this is what else it says. That when he comes to conquer this planet, he's going to bring somebody with him to do that. And you know who that is? That's you and me. That's what Psalm 96 is all about. He brings you and I. Psalm 96 is about the establishment of Christ and his people and their reign upon the earth. Now stop there for a second. Do you understand? This is life-changing. When you get it, do you understand that if you follow Christ in this life, you're going to reign with him in the next life? Do you get that? That is life-changing. If I follow him in this life, I get to come back and I'm going to reign with him in the next life. So we are to command, commanded to sing about that, to sing about this glorious king who's coming back. And we are to proclaim his greatness. So that brings us to verses 4 through 6. <clears throat> and this is what it says. Great is the Lord. He is the most worthy of praise. Do you believe that? That was another all by myself. <laughs> I'm lonely up here, okay? I'm just saying, I'm lonely. Great is the Lord and most worthy to be praised. Amen? Amen. He is to be feared above all gods. Underline that. If you brought your Bible, underline that word. He is to be feared above all gods. We're going to come back in just a minute and talk about the idea of what it means to fear God. And then he describes who the other gods are. The gods of the other nations are mere idols. In other words, they were fashioned and made with men's hands. But the Lord made the, heavens, uh, made the heavens, honor and majesty surround him, strength and beauty fill his sanctuary. So here is a descriptive picture of God in his reign and, uh, and what he wants, what God wants is for you and I to fear him. So what does it mean to fear the Lord? So let's start with what it doesn't mean first. What God loves us and God wants a relationship with us and God is going to share his kingdom glory with us. So what it doesn't mean is that it doesn't mean that we're supposed to dread him. That's not what it means. I think what it means is a reverential, listen to my words, a reverential awe, a reverential awareness of who he is and how he operates. So if I'm going to fear the Lord, I need to know who he is and how he operates. That is so big. Fearing the Lord means living then in the boundaries that God has created for our lives. When I don't fear the Lord, I don't care about my boundaries. But if I fear the Lord, I walk with God inside the boundaries that God has created for me. Does that make sense to you? So that is so good. Thank you. That is good. Thank you. Feel loved. So then Psalm 96 is about worship. So what does, what does genuine worship look like? 
If I'm going to have it, if it's life-changing, if I follow Jesus in this life, I get to reign with him in the next. So in this life, what does worshiping Jesus look like? So glad that you're here today to ask that question, and I'm so glad that I'm here to answer that. Verse 7 begins the descriptive process of telling us what this worship looks like. So in verse 7 it says, O nations of the world, recognize the Lord. Recognize that the Lord is, the glor- is glorious and strong. Start, stop right there for just a second. So the first thing, if I'm going to worship God, I have to believe rightly about who He is. He can't be. Here's where you might not like me for a while. He can't be the God of my imagination. He's got to be the God of revelation. He's got to be the God who reveals himself for who he really is. So when I say, listen carefully, that's, you know, my God would never do that. And most of the time that's in the context of God, my God would never judge anybody. If that's your God, you've made that God up in your mind. It's not the God that God has revealed in the Bible. Because the God that is revealed in the Bible is the God that's going to come back the second time. And when he comes back the second time, he is going to, listen to me carefully, he has loved this world, he's loved this world, he's given himself to this world. But when he comes back the second time, he is going to judge this world with his wrath. That's the God of the Bible. And it's only because he has loved so well that we can say yes, amen to that. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So we have to believe rightly about who he is. So one of my favorite places in all the, all this, on this planet, besides being right next to my wife, I'd say that, but location-wise, Location-wise, one of my favorite places to be in this world is Yosemite. I love Yosemite. I just love its beauty, its magnificence. And if you ever go to Yosemite, how many of you have ever been to Yosemite? You know, lots of you have. So for those of you who haven't, I'm going to describe something, give you a picture of Yosemite in just a minute. But uh, when, you, when you go to Yosemite Valley, you have to go through a tunnel. When you get to the end of the tunnel, basic magnificence opens up before you. I mean, what you see is El Capitan, Half Dome, Cathedral Rock, all of that. I mean, you drive through, and there's a parking lot. When you drive through the tunnel and you look at this, they don't want you wrecking your car. So they've provided a parking lot, and what happens is, is that people stop their cars, they get their cell phones out, their cameras out, and they're snapping photos. And if you roll your window down and you listen carefully, what you're going to hear is people going, ooh, ah, man, can you believe this? This is so good. You're going to hear oohs and ahs. And rightfully so, because this is magnificent. Look at it again. It's magnificent. That picture doesn't do it justice. It's magnificent. So think about this for just a second. Imagine that you drive through that tunnel, but when you emerge out the other side, all you see is fog. A fog rolls in, no awesome view, just thick, gray, soupy fog. Now, that would ruin the view, right? Would you agree with that? I mean, I can stay in Reno and see fog. I don't have to go to Yosemite. 
So let's think about that spiritually for just a few minutes. That's what happens when we are not seeing God rightly. A fog grows into our, into our life and it skews everything we're looking at. When I don't see God rightly, it blocks the view. And what are the things that block my view? Primarily unbelief. My choice to make God in my own image. That's what man does. Man tries to make God in his own image, saying if I were God, this is what I would do. But the God of the Bible is different. The God of the Bible does not negotiate on my terms. In fact, the only thing that he accepts is total surrender. Because he's a loving, amazing God, I willfully surrender to him because he's demonstrated his own love towards me in that while I was still acting out in sin, he died for me. And so for me, surrender is a no, no big deal. It's no biggie. I gladly surrender to God every day because I know of how great a God that I serve. So the fog moves in. And here's what happens is that I believe there's a fog on a lot of people's lives because they don't see God rightly. And so we show up at church, many of us, and we go through the motions of worship. Here's where you're not going to like me again. We go through the motions of worship, and uh, it's like getting out at the car in the parking lot when you see a fog and go, ooh, and ah. But there's no substance there if you can't see God rightly. And so we go through the motions, and uh, we say the right words. We sing the right words, but without an expression of heart without an expression of devotion. I mean, look at your own body language when you sing to God. Listen, watch it sometime. So, I, I mean, I'm a student of people. Sometimes you just fold your arms like this and you're studying. I hate to tell you this, but you're not God. You're just not. God is to be rightly worshipped. And when you just go through the motions, you're just walking in this fog. So why would we do that? Because we don't see God for who he rightfully is. Let God open your eyes. That would be a prayer that I would pray for my life every day. I do actually. Open my eyes so that I can see exactly who you are. And I don't, I don't want to worship the God of my own imagination. I want, to, I want to worship the God of revelation. The God that reveals himself. So number two, we're talking about how we worship God. First of all, we worship on, him, on His terms. Secondly, we are to bring gifts as a way of recognizing His Lordship to our lives. Verse 8 says, Give to the Lord the glory He deserves. Bring your offering and come into His courts. So stop there for a second. So here, Grace, you're going to hear us say this a lot, and I believe it with all my heart. I think it originated with me, and they kind of took it and made it better. And, uh, but I believe this with all my heart, that the reason we ask you to give is because it changes your heart. When you, give your, when you give yourself to something, it changes you. When you give a part of you, it changes you. But that is not the only reason to give. And in fact, that's kind of a consumer way to give. Oh, you tell me to give, and I will give, and I'm going to get changed. Isn't that, I mean, smile at me when I say this. Isn't that kind of being a, a consumer? 
God, I'll do this for you. You do this for me. There's another way to look at giving, and that is simply this. And I want you to think about it this way. When I give to the Lord out of a sacrificial heart, what I am doing is I'm acknowledging his lordship over my life. I'm acknowledging that he is greater than me and that he is the provider of all that I need. It's a very powerful thing. So we approach him with the idea that we, by giving away, by giving of our offering unto the Lord, we acknowledge his authority over our lives. How important is that? That's not consumer-based giving, is it? I'm acknowledging to God that he rightly deserves the authority over my life. That is amazing. When I get to that point in my Christian life, I'm beginning to make progress. I'm beginning to move down the path of what it really looks like to walk with Jesus. Verse 9. How are we doing so far? Verse 9 says, <clears throat> excuse me, worship the Lord in all his holy splendor. Let all the earth tremble before him. So the third thing I see about worship is we are to approach him with a submissive spirit in a sense of humility and awe. I don't come to him as the man upstairs. I just don't. I don't refer to him as the man upstairs. When I refer to God, I either use his personal name, Yahweh, or I use one of his descriptive names that he reveals in the Bible. And here's the thing about me. I told you this earlier. Uh, singing isn't my primary form of worship to God. I do it. I do it in my truck. I do it here until you cringe and then I stop. But my primary form of worship is different than that. My primary form. And this is what I do. I'm not suggesting you should do it because I don't have Grayson's gifts. What I do is I get up every morning, I get up early, and about six o'clock every morning, I don't make exceptions. This is, a, this, is a, this is something that I practice every day is I get down on all fours, I put my face to the ground, and I acknowledge his authority in my life. I acknowledge his greatness and his goodness, and his mercy, and his holiness over my life. Every day. And uh, that is my ultimate expression of worship. I'm not saying that's how you have to do it. I'm telling you how I do it. And if you want to practice that, that's awesome, that's great. But you've got to find something that works for you, where you bring yourself into the place of submission to God, in a spirit of humility, in a spirit of awe, there needs to be something every day in your life where you, are, you just put yourself in a place of awe before God. Literally, the word worship, it's interesting, means to bow down. To worship means to bow down. And so you need to put yourself in that position emotionally, spiritually, even physically, where you bow down before the Lord. And for me to do that regularly, I think there needs to be a hunger in my life that drives that. So let me talk about that for just a second. The French have a proverb which states, a good meal ought to begin with hunger. Do you agree with that? The opposite of that is it's hard to enjoy a meal when you're not really hungry. You can, you can go to the best restaurants in Reno. And if you're not hungry, you're wasting your money, right? You are. You might as well go to McDonald's if you're not hungry. As the most finest restaurants in Reno. Can I say that out loud? So let me just see. Let's just unpack this for just a few minutes. So I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but in the last 
three months, I went on a journey uh, and I've lost a lot of weight. You know, I, I started eating differently. I started disciplining my life. I, you know, I, I can't control the fact that I'm an old guy, but I can control the fact that I'm an old fat guy. <laughs> so that's no judgment on anybody else. It was me. Looked in the mirror one day and said, dude, dude, you got to do something about this. And so I went on this journey. And, uh, and so I'm not going to lie. It's not been easy. It hasn't been easy. And I'm hungry all the time. And I'm just looking at some of your person. What do you got in there? I'm, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I eat six times a day, but it's just a really tiny bit of, that I eat. And uh, I'm, I'm always hungry. I'm not going to lie. I'm hungry. And so we had a guest in. Uh, the, the staff brought a guest in this past week. And, and so the executive team here at Grace took him out to dinner uh, to, get to get to know him a little bit better. And he's helping, helping us with some projects in the future. And uh, we took him to a really nice restaurant. Um, it was a McDonald's. And so I looked at the menu, and the only thing that I could have on this menu, the only thing that I could have on the menu was a protein-style hamburger. Now, that means there's no bun, no flavor, hardly at all. You know, it's th none of the good stuff is on there. And uh, here's what's ironic. It was amazing. It was amazing. You know why? Because I was hungry. <laughs> I mean, and normally, if anybody's ever eaten with me, they know that I normally just devour my food. You're done already. This particular meal, I'm just telling you, one bite at a time, slow, chewed it 39 times. You know, I wanted to get all the flavors that I could get because I'm hungry, man. Now think about this. How much deeper does our relationship go with God when I'm hungry for Him? When I'm hungry for Him. That's where worship really begins to satisfy our soul. Is, and, I, and I promise you this, is that when you approach God with a hunger to be satisfied, you'll be satisfied every time. When it's a hunger to be satisfied, effective worship begins right there with a hunger for God. Then verse 10. Verse 10 says, Tell the nations, the Lord reigns. The world stands firm and cannot be shaken. He will judge all peoples fairly. So principle number four in worship, we're looking at how then do I worship God? Number four is we're bold about the Lord. Worshippers, followers of Jesus are bold about the Lord. So let me see if I can tell you a story out of history that I think is powerful and amazing and uh, I hope that you'll resonate with it the same way I did. So you've heard the story, or someone said to you, probably someone has said this to you, put your John Hancock here, right? Anybody heard that line? Do you know where that comes from? I didn't. So I thought, where does that come from? So I, I did a little research, and this is what I discovered, is that there were 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence, and John Hancock was the first signature. But not just the first signature. This is what happened. It was a statement. It was a declaration. So you know what he did? He wrote it boldly and as large as he could because he didn't want the king of England to have to use his glasses to read his name. 
So when someone says, put your John Hancock here, what they're saying is, write it boldly. Put your, don't be ashamed of that. Don't, write it out. Put your name on those. And this is what's interesting. This is what I found fascinating. The king of England knew what he was up against. And so he offered for people that if they would just lay down their arms, he offered them amnesty. All except John Hancock. He didn't offer it to him because John Hancock made a bold statement. So now let's talk. Here's one of those things you're not going to like me again. I don't think. Do your friends know that you're a Christ follower? Do your, do your co-workers know that you're a Christ follower? Do, does the person living next to you, does the person working next to you know that you are a Christ follower? Part of a worshiping God is not being ashamed of his name. Not throwing it down someone's throat. Not, you know, getting your, your squirt gun out and charging hell with your squirt gun and making, being obnoxious. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, is that I should not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I should not be ashamed of the one who died for me. I should boldly proclaim his name. I shouldn't apologize for it. I shouldn't backtrack. I shouldn't be intimidated. At this name, at this name, Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of the Father someday. So if I believe that, if I believe that, why would I care about what Susie thinks about me? Why would I care about what my next door neighbors think about me? Why would I care about my coworkers? What would they would think about me? Why would I care if every knee is going to bow before Jesus someday? That's worship. Worship is a bold expression of my faith in Jesus without being ashamed. And it is a beautiful expression every time it happens. That's Psalm 96. It's such a great psalm. It really is.